The World of Dark Ages podcast presents Side Quests, tidbits and inspiration for the Dark Ages. Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to Side Quests. My name is Jacob, and this is yet another solo project for me. So, a friend of mine has just debuted his own podcast called The World of RPGs. This podcast is about tabletop role-playing games around the world. In every episode, the host interviews role-playing enthusiasts and professionals from a non-English-speaking country about what games they play, what unique role-playing games exist in their country, and how new people get into the hobby. Interviewees include regular gamers, club organizers, game shop owners, creators of actual play videos, role-playing game authors, and gaming studios. While some places are known for their large role-playing scene and have a lot of local role-playing game systems, other regions of the world have smaller scenes and might not even have a single RPG in the local language. Every regular episode ends with a teaser for the next country, an excerpt from an actual play recording in that country's language. The aim of the podcast is to broaden our horizons and find out about role-playing games from all over the world. I'll put a link to the World of RPGs podcast in the notes of this episode. This side quest episode will focus on the state of the clans in the year 1242, when the 20th anniversary edition of Dark Ages is set, and so we'll mainly focus on the information from that book, plus my own interpretations and, if necessary, what we know from both earlier and later books. If you are a player, you can hopefully use this for inspiration when it comes to characters, and as a storyteller this might help you to think up some new and interesting story threads. We start with the Asamites, who do not call themselves Asamites. That is what the Europeans call the clan. They call themselves the Children of Hakim, which is a change from the Vale of Nightbook, where they called themselves the Banu Hakim, which means the Sons of Hakim. I guess they wanted to distance themselves as much as possible from the male-dominated, even misogynistic, early portrayal of the Asamite. To outsiders, the Asamites are seen as a young clan, whatever that means. Elder Canaanites remember when the clan withdrew to their stronghold at Alamut and more or less disappeared from the world. These knights, most Canaanites, especially those in Western Europe, mainly interact with the vizier caste as diplomats, making them the default class. Internally, the big divide among the Asamites is between the Muslims and those who follow, or even worship, Hakim, the founder of the clan. The Muslims are mostly young, relatively recently embraced vampires. Since the Asamites draw mainly from the Middle East and surrounding areas, it makes sense that they draw in mostly Muslims. However, some older clan members have also converted to Islam, and with the religion's very strict monotheistic approach, this could lead to a civil war. It doesn't help that the Ashira, the sect of Muslim Canaanites, have a strong presence in the Asamite heartland. The Asamites are divided into three castes, all of which have their own role to play in interpreting and enforcing Hakim's law and acting as judges. The viziers observe, make notes, report and interpret other Canaanites' actions. The warriors are the ones who deliver the judgment of Hakim and reclaim the blood of unworthy vampires. And the sorcerers use their magic to allow for long-distance communication, as well as assist the warriors in their task. They're also engaged in a ritual effort to try and find a way to make vampires exist without the blood of mortals. With the Mongols at the doorstep of the Middle East, there is going to be chaos, death and destruction. And this could either be the trigger that pushes the Asamites into a religious civil war, or it could be what pushes them out of their self-imposed retreat from Canaanite society, exploiting the chaos to take the blood of those who found unworthy. Although the Viziers are the dominant caste within the clan, at least seen from the outside, 
the warriors will be taking the lead at some point, whether it be after the Mongol invasion or in the chaos of the Anarch revolt. Next are the Bruja, and this is the crossroads for the clan, the time where they begin to become the rebels without a cause known from the modern knights. Originally, the Bruja were philosopher kings who sought change because change brought with it progress, and progress would, they believe, eventually lead to their utopia, where canites and mortals can exist side by side. However, the world has changed from the time of the ancient realms, the Greek city-states and even the hated Roman Empire, or at least the Western one. Central organization disappeared from the lands of the Western Roman Empire, and with it, scholarship, philosophy, and so much more. Even in 1242, Western Europe has not yet reached a fraction of what the Roman Empire had, and times are very different. While slavery and a class society existed in all the old empires, it is even more rigidly enforced now, empowered by a strong centralized religion. No longer can slaves dream of gaining their freedom and rising to become great merchants, or a peasant hope to become an emperor. So the Brugia clan are divided. Some argue for a violent change, a change that includes getting rid of the old vampires that enforce the status quo, while others embrace the old ways, looking to change outlooks and beliefs. The church is, for many Brugia, the institution that keeps the class system stagnated, and while some seek to infiltrate it, many more rage against it and support those who seek to escape the control of the church. The only thing that keeps the Brugia from an all-out civil war is the fact that they have always welcomed diversity and dissent, but the clan is acting at cross-purpose with itself and so on undermining its own effort. Now the Brugia have so much to choose from at this point, with cities growing, the burger class gaining influence, the non-noble merchants raking in vast wealth, the rise of universities across Europe and even reformation looming in the church, but the younger members lack perspective, patience and sometimes even idealism. As a result, the clan is losing prestige in the eyes of the Canite society, where they were once one of the most scholarly clans renowned for seeing possibilities that no other could. They are now becoming viewed more and more as the fomenters of peasant revolts, whether or not these peasants call themselves burghers or not. The clan elders' unwillingness to chastise their wayward childhood does not help the clan's standing. Clan Cappadocian is having a grand old time. Sure, the fall of the Western Roman Empire saw the loss of much scholarship and education in the West, but the centuries since have been an unprecedented opportunity to study death at a grand scale. And now, Europe is slowly getting itself back into shape, but without the Pax Romanum to maintain internal peace. Universities are being built, grand monasteries establish libraries, and even lords and kings begin to realize the value of scholarship. The Crusades not only bring with it death, but also the knowledge of the ancient Greeks, preserved by the Muslims. The Cappadocians seem to have it made. Because they are staunchly apolitical, they are never feared as rivals by those Canaanites in power, who instead seek out Cappadocian advisors. And so what if they have a reputation for being the lapdog of princes? It's a way to get protection, money, and the time needed to study. The Cappadocians are also one of the most organized clans, and they have little in the way of internal strife, especially now when there seems to be enough resources to go around. They are, in fact, stable enough to have created a second bloodline, the only clan to verifiably have spawned no less than two of those. For now, the Giovanni are a small and relatively uninfluential group who have little to say in the affairs of the clan as a whole, though we know this will change. For Clan Gangrel, the world is becoming less and less to their liking. 
in ages past, they ran with the Huns, the Goths, the Vandals, the Magyars, and sailed with the Norse. They embraced the free, honorable, and harsh lifestyle of what the civilized people called barbarians. And while there are rumblings in the East, Christianity is close to extinguishing the flame of the pagan religions and the cultures that the Gangrel loved so much. Now, most of Europe at this point is still wilderness, with its trackless forests, vast mountains, and moors and marshes. But the march of civilization seems inevitable. Forests are burned down to make way for the plough, and wetlands are drained for the same purpose, while mountains are mapped for trade routes and scouted for minerals to mine. Some gangrel retreat into the wilderness to lead out their unlives in solitude with hunters, bandits and charcoal burners, while some make what they can of the towns and cities. Others seek a return to the old times and try to destroy the symbols of civilization, the church and the cities, often by targeting the Canaanites who have their hooks deep into these organizations. Others join the side of the pagans who remain in Prussia, the Baltics and northern Scandinavia, celebrating the old ways and joining the fight against the tide of Christianity. These last two groups are doomed to failure, though the arrival of the Mongols give them some hope to the contrary. However, as Clan Gangrel have no grand overarching structure and values individuality, struggles are just that, individual, rather than between ideological groups. Whatever else, though, Clan Gangrel will survive, as they always do. Clan La Sombra is at their peak, with their investment in the Catholic Church paying off. In 1242, they could be argued to be the most politically powerful and influential clan in the lands that were once the Western Roman Empire. Theoretically, the clan is united by the Amici Noctis, the friends of the night who hear petitioners and grant the right of diapery if a member of the clan is found wanting. However, there are numerous cracks in the facade. The first and most obvious is the Shadow Reconquista, which sees the Christian La Sombra face off against their Muslim brethren. The Muslim La Sombra have the advantage of being a respected and influential part of the Ashira, while the Christian La Sombra dominate the Amici Noctis. The second is that the La Sombra often embrace ambitious mortals, and those with ambition tend to resent the fact that they cannot step into dead men's shoes when the dead men are still wearing them. And with the Amici Noctis being conservative and dominated by elders, some younger La Sombra have been looking at new ways to ascend the ranks. All they need are a spark, an opportunity, and or some allies. Finally, the La Sombra are losing ground to their old rivals, the Ventru. While it is true that the La Sombra will sometimes embrace a lower-class mortal with drive and ambition, they're more likely to embrace those who have a high position, sometimes without realizing that this person did, not, uh, did nothing to earn said position. In addition, while the church is still extremely dominant, it is losing ground to Reformation ideas and the simple greed of merchants who give only lip service to Christian ideals. Add to this the fact that the Ventru have seized upon the new and rising class of burghers, especially merchants and guild leaders, and soon the La Sombra influence over secular and religious leaders will not be as worth as much as it was. For the Malkavians, the main conflict isn't internal, it's external. In the current world, their insanity is seen as God's disfavor. There is very little holy in madness, as opposed to previous ages where seers and oracles were expected to be um, off. As such, older Malkavians who were used to hiding behind their madness find themselves haunted by the church, while younger members of the clan are unwilling to embrace their tainted gifts and look upon the elders with suspicion. In the world of the Canaanites, the Malkavians are seen as tools more than individuals, vampiric magic eight balls to be shaken for prophecy and insight. 
they are much less respected than the Cappadocians as the perception of madness shifts ever more towards divine disfavor. It doesn't help that the Malkavians sense a great disaster and all-consuming sickness approaching, something that will infect the clan and possibly even more than that. As a result, the Malkavians of 1242 tend to be a fatalistic lot, with few of them even having the will to fight their nigh enslavement at the hands of other Canites. They join together in ordos, orders that are designed to understand or even exploit their insanity. However, these orders are not going to last for long. Like many other clans before them, the Nosferatu are suffering under the collapse of the Roman Empire. No more Roman cities are being built, and the old structures fall more and more into disrepair, leaving the Nosferatu without their normal bolt holes, the sewers and the underground necropoli and cisterns that the Romans were so fond of building. And hide the Nosferatu must from both mortals, and often their fellow Canites. When it comes to mortals, it is obvious that their hideous appearance drives them into hiding, whereas Canites shun them for the secrets they uncover. Add to this the fact that the Nosferatu see themselves as hunted by an ancient evil created by their founder, or maybe it is their founder, and they have good reason to disappear. However, some Nosferatu have found a new solace, Christianity. This religion offers redemption, and so some Nosferatu began looking towards the Christian faith as a way to atone for the sins of their blood. This has resulted in a split in the clan. Someone to remain the monsters that they see themselves as, and in many cases were, before their embrace. The rest have embraced Christianity with a fervor, displaying not just a personal faith, but a proselytizing attitude. While other clans influence the church through leaders, the Nosferatu are in on the ground floor, and as an, as an added bonus, they find havens in crypts and monastery cellars. The pious penitents stand strong when compared to the monsters, but they're also playing with fire, or more specifically, true faith. The Ravnos are split into two distinctive groups, the newcomers who traveled with the Roma and the old ones whose bloodlines have been in Europe for centuries. Unfortunately for the old guard, the reputation of the newcomers seem to be soloing the overall perception of the clan. The old Yati find themselves lumped in with the traveling troublemakers who also seem to ignore the philosophical tenets of the clan in favor of just using their powers to enrich themselves. As such, the Ravnos are headed for a fall and the destruction of their old ways in favor of them being tarred with the brush of traveling thieves and deceivers. The Ravnos do not have a huge presence within Western Europe and so their position tends to be more individual than something that can be summed up in a clan-wide approach. Of all the clans, the Setsites are one of the most united. With renewed contact between East and West, the followers of Set can move into lands where they are relatively unknown and take advantage of being seen as corrupt, hedonistic and venal. This allows them to seem like a known quantity so that Western Canites do not realize their true purpose of undermining the current society for the greater glory of Set. In fact, most Westerners are likely to see the Setsites as mere peddlers of Eastern wares, uh, something that the Setsites are more than happy to exploit. The biggest problem the clan faces are those few members who truly give themselves over to hedonistic pleasures rather than actually pursue the work of Set, but on the other hand, these Setites do help spread corruption into the Abrahamic society, so it's all good. For Clan Toreador, things are beginning to look up. With wealth, centralization and organization on the rise in Western Europe, art is coming back in a big way. 
Add to this the Catholic Church's desire to praise God through paintings, sculptures, and magnificent edifices, and the Toreador have their hands full. And that is before adding the burgeoning movement of courtly romance and chivalry. Even the universities have something to add to all of this, whereas the study of art hasn't really become a subject. It is still an art form in itself to study. In fact, the Toreador's main problem is likely that they are spoilt for choice and extremely distracted. Thus, obviously, their tempers and desires tend to make other clan members their biggest rivals and enemies. For the Toreador, this age is merely a matter of riding the wave more than anything else. Ah, Clan Tremere, you magnificent bastards. So, at this point, Clan Tremere is no longer fighting tooth and nail for survival. They have pretty much ensured that their former mortal house of mages isn't a problem. They have an alliance with the Eastern Lord Ventru, Seoris is kinda secured, and even the internal strife between Etrius and Goratrix's factions are kept under control since Goratrix is in France. Tremere himself spends more and more time in Torpo, however, so he is unable to direct the clan as he did before. As a result, Clan Tremere is in an expansion phase. They are establishing new chantries and looking for ways to make themselves independent of the Ventru. Probably the higher-ups are also realizing that there is a problem with having their main chantry in the middle of Tsimish territory, and they are considering the validity of moving, though the move to Vienna won't come until almost a hundred years after this specific time. Young Tremere are in a rather advantageous situation. With all these new chantries being established, they have an option to move out and establish a power base outside of the rigid structure within Sirius. However, with the clan being spread as much as it is, there is a greater tendency for the young ones to try to escape the bureaucracy of the pyramid. Clan Smish is in trouble. And their way of doing things created a knife-edge balance which might have survived the Eastern Lord Ventru and might have survived the Tremere, but not both. And with the Mongols coming in from the east and the Teutonic Knights and the Scandinavian Crusaders from the west, things are only going to get worse. And that's not even adding the problem of the fall of Constantinople in 1204, where a significant section of the clan suddenly found their way of unlife being disrupted. The elder Tsimish cling to their old ways and refuse to acknowledge that they are in trouble, while young Tsimish, survivors of battles or angry child denied a chance of advancement, gather together in packs roaming Eastern Europe. The big weakness of the clan is on full display, their inability to set aside their feudal wars for territory, even as their enemies reduce that territory. What the clan needs is reformers, but with the elders being so conservative and the young rebels so aggressive, they are unlikely to get it. Clan Ventru see themselves as the rightful rulers of all Canites, but they've always been opposed, be it by the La Sombra, the Toreador, or the Brugia, or several of them in combination. After the fall of Western Rome, the Ventru saw their fortunes take a downturn. They had never invested so much in the church, which was now the sole uniting organization in Western Europe. As centralization and order returned, the Ventru played it safe, and so... They now tend to stay much more behind the scenes than the Toreador and the La Sombra. Interestingly, the Ventru's main rival for domain and candidates for the embrace are no longer the La Sombra, but the Brugia. Like the Brugia, 
the Ventru recognized the power of the rising burger class, the merchants and the guild leaders who claw their way to the top, not by dint of noble blood and privilege, but through hard work, ambition and skill. With the church still strong, the Ventru are in a stalemate with the La Sombra, and the Toreador are a minor contender, but as more and more wealth and power centralize in the cities, the Ventru dominance grows. In addition, the Ventru are involved in expanding their territory, latching on to the various crusades in Eastern Europe and trying to push the, out the Tsimish along with the native Gangrel and Nosferatu. And this is not an easy fight, and those Ventru who survive as neonets in this crucible are hardened and prepared for the worst that the West can offer. So, I hope you found this an interesting look at the various clans. As you may have noticed, these uh, side quests are not that long, since I don't have Peter to ping-pong with or indeed to go off on some weird tangent. I hope that I can record at least one more side quest, maybe even two, before Peter returns, but we'll see how it goes. Remember, we have a Patreon page and we are on Facebook if you want to ask questions or comments or even if you have a suggestion for any kind of side quest episode. So, until you hear from me again, it is goodbye, farewell, and see you next time.